The 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver have generated a myriad of intriguing subplots. One is the intense rivalry of two female skaters, South Korea's Kim Yuna and Japan's Mao Asada. This spirited rivalry is profoundly intensified by the bitter hostilities that have marred the relationship between South Korea and Japan over the centuries. And adding even more pressure on these young women is the fact that they come from what many would call honor-based cultures, which might be better termed sometimes shame-based cultures. As a Westerner, it could make your blood boil to watch these two delicate waif-like women preparing to compete, aware that anything less than a gold performance will subject them to intense cultural shame. Not necessarily by everyone, but by many. They are the best female skaters in history, both advancing the frontiers of their sport in tangible ways. And yet a silver medal will subject them to shame in their homelands on some level. And so there stands Mao Asada of Japan on a podium. A silver medal draped around her neck, and a face that reflects the pain of a woman who has failed and knows that she will pay a bitter price for it. She is probably, in many respects, the second greatest ice skater that's ever stood on the planet. And yet there's this deep disappointment. And as Westerners, we're easily and rightly appalled by such cultural cruelty. We see some of our people standing there with massive grins because they've won a bronze. And they're happy about it, and even some explaining how they're just happy they came. But you know, as twisted as shame-based cultures tend to be, we in the West are deviant at the very other end of the spectrum. Repulsed by the notion of cultural shame, our culture's motto is, I don't care what anyone thinks. I am free to do what I want, the way that I want to do it. Keep out of my business. It's all about me. You stay out of it. Well, that's just as twisted, isn't it? And it's very pervasive. Depravity in Eastern cultures tends to twist shame into a cruel and heartless bludgeon. Depravity in Western cultures tends to so despise the very notion of shame as to sacrifice its power to encourage moral responsibility. We simply don't do shame here. By virtue of Jesus' saving grace in our lives, we should be very different. In both of these extremes, by virtue of his saving grace in our lives, the culture of our church should avoid these faulty extremes. The culture of a biblically grounded church, do we recognize this? A church that honors Jesus Christ as its head will employ the motivation of shame. And it will do so in an edifying way. It's both. Shame has a place, but it must be used very delicately and very responsibly. Now, let me tell you, this is not a hot topic in churches these days. Not around here. Not in this culture. 
This is not a kind of sermon or a kind of topic that you'll hear much of anywhere, I don't think. But it is one that we cannot avoid if we are to honor God's counsel as a church concerning our life together and what it is to be. Jesus speaks and we need to listen. Now in recent weeks, and the purpose of this message today is that in recent weeks we've been considering God's wisdom regarding corrective church discipline. Today, then, we're going to turn to the more narrow topic, investigating this question. How should we relate to a member under church discipline who refuses to be restored? So we looked last week at the idea that all church discipline, that is, as we remove someone from the membership, according to the words of Christ, as we do that, we should always have in view the desire to restore, to bring a person to repentance and to right standing. Now, far from an isolated discussion about a matter that rarely affects us, this question is vital. And I know there's some that are very much tempted right now to get off the track. You say, church discipline, I don't really have much to do with that to begin with, but how often do we as a church need to consider how we relate to someone who's under church discipline? I mean, isn't that a very narrow topic that's really not going to affect me? We need to understand that this question gets to the heart of how we understand the nature of God and His saving grace. This topic has everything to do about God and about how we honor Him and how we understand Him. So let's start by reviewing what we've already considered in recent weeks, just to refresh and to establish a place to start. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Remembering here Jesus' words of instruction. And this is why we even have such a topic, why we would even consider such a passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus instructs concerning the most private and smallest of offenses within a believing assembly. Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone radically countercultural already go to this person address this individual between the two of you privately if he listens to you you have gained your brother repentance comes and the relationship is restored but verse 16 if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses And again, I think the point is assumed, and if he listens, then you have gained your brother. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Take it to the entire body and bring the matter there. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now our focus today leads us to consider carefully that last phrase. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Spoken to Jewish audiences, not remembering Jesus would relate to these individuals differently than his hearers might relate to them, but relate to this individual as a Gentile and a tax collector, not as a member of the believing assembly, but as someone on the outside. Unrepentant sin must be addressed by the assembly. And if a church member refuses to repent, the matter must ultimately become a matter of communal rebuke. 
in which the relationship now, until the point of repentance, is to treat this individual as an unbeliever, as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5. We also looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just remember here, we have a man living in open adultery and incest within the assembly. The church continues to receive him. Paul rebukes the church and says at verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is, you are to take him outside of the care of the church and put him into the care of Satan. That is Paul's call upon the assembly. At verse 13, we see that the assembly is to purge the evil person from among you. So at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Corinthian church, purge the evil person from among you. You are to exercise proper judgment against this individual who is walking in unrepentant sin. Now again, the key here is that phrase, do not associate with him. Once this person has been removed from the assembly of the church, the watch care of the church, and the membership in that sense, how are we to relate to this individual? Not to associate. Do not walk in fellowship with him as if no sin divided the sinner from the assembly. Now we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I don't think the idea is that you pretend the person's not there and invisible. But there's not a fellowship, there's not an association that says, this is a believer with whom I am walking in fellowship. In fact, all of this is leading, as we looked at 2 Corinthians 2 last week, to bringing this person to repentance and to restoration in the assembly. That's the goal of it all. But with these ideas again established, let's go now to the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. But we're going to first actually look at the first letter. We'll be stopping longer at the second. But just to get the context of his writings to the Thessalonian believers, he has urged the church to grow in love for one another. And then in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, having urged them to grow in love, he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. Now, for reasons we cannot ultimately know, some of the members of the church at Thessalonica were avoiding gainful employment, whether this was connected to some social issue, whether it was an ecclesiastical issue that there was a belief that the wealthier should pay for the, for the poor, whether it was eschatological, that Christ was going to come, and some were already uh, assuming that that was just right on the door. We don't really know why. We cannot really determine this is the reason these individuals weren't working. Maybe they were just purely lazy. We don't know. All we need to know is they weren't working. 
Paul addresses this issue. He says this kind of behavior had two particular problems. Did you notice it in verse 12? What is the problem? Problem number one, that we may live properly before outsiders. You need to get to work because not working is a poor testimony to unbelievers. Secondly, not working led to dependency. If you are not working to earn your own way, then you're asking somebody else to earn your way for you. And that is inappropriate, Paul says, and so let's get out of this. Chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, I urge you, brothers, as he continues the admonition, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and, and likewise. But admonish the idle. Now you'll notice probably a footnote there. The Greek word doesn't really usually translate idle. It usually translates something like out of line or disruptive or unruly. The way in which these individuals were disruptive and unruly was that they weren't working. And so the word idle has sort of crept into our translations. But as their disruption was rooted in their refusal to work, the problem was really greater than simple laziness or greater than simply not gaining the income that they needed. The problem had begun to affect the body. It was disrupting the church. It probably included them leeching off of others, as there's indications throughout, but it certainly also led to their spending their time in places they shouldn't be spending it. Work has a way of tiring us out and keeping us busy. They weren't being busy, and we'll see that in a moment. Think of this now. As Paul's writing, when he was with them, he actually had to tell them that if someone doesn't work, don't feed that person. Then he writes this letter here, and then we understand that the problem continues. And so he writes another letter, 2 Thessalonians, and let's make our way there. These disruptive and lazy church members were not changing their ways. And so Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, he continues the discussion with more pointedness here. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Keep away from him. That is the warm covenantal fellowship between the church and a disruptive member of the body was to be suspended. So we're hearing echoes of Jesus' words, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do not associate with him, 1 Corinthians 5. And here, again, the same concept. Keep away from any such person. The church was to detect those living in morally disruptive, evangelistically inferior ways, and they were to purposefully avoid them. Now again, we'll, we'll look at this a bit more pointedly in a bit, but Paul stresses next that those living idle, disruptive lives were living in opposition to the tradition that Paul had passed on to them. So we see that in verse 6, not in accord with the tradition. Now don't think here of ritualistic tradition, but think here of the teaching that Paul had given and think of the example. In a Jewish way, this would have been the understanding of tradition. It wasn't simply facts on a page or rituals, but it was a way of life. 
The manner of life, which he now goes on to describe in verse 7. Remember what I taught you. Remember the tradition. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. Now Paul qualifies verse 9, it was not because we do not have the right. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that he does have the right. All ministers of the gospel have the right to be compensated. But he chose not to exercise that right, verse 9b, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So what he is saying with this tradition that he's passed on, it's not merely his example, but it is that. It's not merely his teaching, but it is that. I think ultimately the life that Jesus redeemed his people to live is not one in which they leech off of others. It's not one in which they refuse to work so that someone else has to work for them. That's not the redeemed life. And I left you, says Paul, an example of how to work hard to gain your own food. I had the right to receive compensation because I was working as I proclaimed the gospel. I did not exercise that right. You have my example. You have my teaching. You've seen the hard work that promotes the gospel. Now, this is not news to the Thessalonians, is it? This isn't news. He said this before when he was with them. He wrote this in the previous letter. The problem is that the problem hasn't gone away. Verse 10, so he says, For even when we were with you, remember that back then when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I think that's a soft way of saying, don't anybody in the church feed them. Because obviously if you're not working, you're not going to have the money to buy food. So if someone does not work, they should not eat, is a nice way of saying, don't anybody feed such individuals. But in contrast to this work ethic, Paul continues, verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. About as good as we can do in the English to get at a, at a play on words here. It doesn't really translate across, but they were busy about other people's lives. They were not busy with their own lives and their own work. And so here we see that the problem was not merely that they were lazy, but that they were disruptive to the peace of the assembly. They were apparently using time that should have been spent in work, being busybodies within the assembly and causing disruption and trial. So not busy at work, busy minding other people's business. By way of correction, Paul articulates the kind of conduct that is befitting to believers. And verse 12 should now be very obvious to us. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Do their work quietly doesn't mean they whisper while they work. The word quietly is an idea of being characterized by inward calm. You see the idea. They're busybodies. They're all in a tizzy over the affairs of others. They need to rest at peace in the work that God has given them and to earn their own living or literally to eat their own bread. They were not to leech off of others. Again, the indication of the problem. 
So they're spending their time where they shouldn't. And it's causing them to be a siphon off of others' resources and disruption in the assembly. This is to stop. Now, says Paul, to those who are walking rightly, to those who are working, to those who are faithful in the church, he says, verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. They were not to be influenced negatively by the loafers, but were rather to do what is good. Doing good here, that is what? You're to go to work. You're to give appropriately. You're to generally live out the life of God in union with Jesus Christ. But back to those within the assembly who remain in a disruptive orientation, Paul says, verse 14, and here we come in again to the issue of how do we relate to such people. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. Take note. That means the church is to be godly enough and discerning enough to be able to see the lifestyle of people in the church and to be able to identify this individual here is not walking in line with the teaching of God's word and in line with the implications of the gospel. Take note of that person. Having identified such a person, what were they to do? Have nothing to do with him. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 11. Do not associate with this individual who is walking in unrepentant sin. The same word is used here, have nothing to do with this individual. Don't associate with them because they, they walk in sin and in unrepentance. Now again, what is the purpose of this treatment? Why should we not associate with such a person? It is this, that he may be ashamed. One commentator explains the cultural force of this command. I think it's helpful when he says, Honor in Mediterranean societies came from the group to which one belonged. And the loss of honor resulted in shame. It's one of the places where Western individualism fails us. There is not so much a sense of honor coming from the group. And there's some good things in that. But there's some bad things in it. With their sense of honor coming from the group, from the society, from the church, shame could be a very positive motivator. To be dishonored, he says, by the community was a strong moral condemnation. The censor of the body to which one belonged would have been one of the most effective ways to assure conformity to the standards of the group. So let's say this real pointedly. The church was to break fellowship with such a member so that he would become ashamed of his actions and return to a path of obedience. Now here's where we, as Westerners, step in and go, wait a minute. This person's walking in unrepentant sin. By disassociating from them, we shame them, and then they change their ways. Isn't that just manipulation? Isn't that false motivation for someone to be motivated simply by shame? Well, indeed it can be. But here's the thing, and here's where we have to think differently. It does not have to be. We need one another to help us think clearly. And sometimes people can come alongside of us to provide the motivation to take a very hard look at our lives. 
This is where we in the West have a very serious problem. We want to be private. We want to be individual. We want people to stay out of our business. But what Jesus is teaching us is that the church can actually be a support and a help and a strength to individuals by providing an accountability we're not finding in our own heart. And when someone becomes entrapped in sin and begins to walk away from God, we as a church can surround in a helpful way and bring appropriate shame if there is unrepentance. Well, it's still hard. It's just hard to take. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Again, I'll qualify this in a bit, but isn't that really harsh and unloving? To disregard an individual, to disfellowship from an individual, isn't that harsh and unloving? Three responses. I don't think it is if we really believe that that person caught in sin is going to stand before Christ in judgment. If we really honestly believe that, then I don't think it is harsh. I don't think it's harsh, secondly, if we realize that the greatest love I can have for others is to encourage them to see God for who He is and to oppose everything that detracts from His glory. If I really see life that way, then it's not about my relationship with the individual ultimately, but about the glory of God. And thirdly, I don't think it's harsh and unloving if we understand that the goal is restoration indicated by the next verse. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy. Okay, there's a qualifier for do not associate with him. Don't regard him as an enemy. But warn him as a brother. So if I'm going to warn him, obviously not associating with him does not mean we're never going to talk again. I'm going to pretend that the person's not there. I'm going to treat them as dead. We're going to shun them and ban them in such a way that they cease to exist to us, as is the case in some shame-based cultures. We hear of this often as people come to Christ and their families disown them. You have died. You're gone. No. Warn him as a brother. Warn him. Continue to call him back to repentance, not as an enemy, but as a brother. Now here we run into a little trouble on this verse, and that's that some would say brother means that we are to treat him as a Christian brother and a member of the church. There's others that would take the brother to be simply an illustration, to relate to him as a sibling, that is with loyalty, with tender regard, with zealous hope for change. Perhaps most Bible interpreters would say that this is not a matter of church discipline. It's it's not a removal of such people from the membership of the church, but simply a pre-stage to removing them from the membership. It's a difficult conclusion to come to, but there's several reasons I think this is a problem. This, This is a difficult position to say this is not church membership. First of all, it's hard for me to conceive of who this person is. Can we conceive of an unrepentant sinner who is living in ongoing opposition to spiritual authority, is deemed unfit to participate in the fellowship of the church, and one with respect to whom many covenantal responsibilities are now to be suspended, who is leading a lifestyle inimical to the gospel and is thus a poor testimony of the transformational power of Christ, 
and still is a member of the church. That's a stretch for me. Secondly, if 2 Thessalonians 3 purports a stage of corrective church discipline that is prerequisite to church discipline, excommunication, this stage is nowhere else explained in the New Testament, and it adds a stage to the instructions of Jesus in Matthew 18. Now that's okay. We can add a stage to Jesus' instructions if that's what Scripture does. But it seems a bit strange. Jesus says, talk to the person privately, talk within a small group, bring it to the assembly. Now we have something added to that as a pre-stage to that third stage. So, all of that aside, if you missed it all, it just seems reasonable to assume that Paul is speaking here of corrective church discipline. In which case, it is particularly important to us to note that this person is to be warned as a brother. And he says that even in 1 Corinthians 5, where there's a clear case of excommunication, this so-called brother. We're hoping to see restored. And I think we have the idea here as well. You're to treat this one as a brother that you're going to continue to call to repentance and to change. Warn him. In other words, not all contact is severed. We continue to labor to see this professing brother brought back into the fold. Let's remember then, what did Jesus say? Treat this individual as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean no interaction. It means no fellowship that indicates there's nothing wrong in this relationship. We want to relate to unbelievers to bring them to Christ. But if I relate to unbelievers in such a way that other people look at me and say, there's perfect fellowship there, something's wrong. I'm not being loyal to Christ in my friendship to these unbelievers. So in 1 Corinthians 5, don't associate with the individual. Here as well, don't associate with the individual or translated have nothing to do with this person, but warn him. Putting all of this together, we're to treat him as a brother, assume some things. And I draw here from Jonathan Edwards' treatise on excommunication. He says th three things that I'd like to bring out first. This idea of warning him as a brother assumes that we will work toward the restoration of the person under discipline, not write them off as dead. We'll hope for the return. Secondly, it assumes that we will relate to this person with a sense of prior identification. What he means by that is there will be a harder treatment of this individual than of a believer out there who says, I'm not part of the church. I know I'm not part of the church. I've never claimed to be a member of the church. Here's where that person crosses the line coming into the membership and says, I am right with God through Christ. Now, when that person becomes entrapped in sin, there's a little bit of a different relationship than there would be with an unbeliever. Think of it in terms of Jesus' own life. Who did he treat harder? The tax collectors and the sinners or the Pharisees? He, did, he treated the Pharisees a lot harder, didn't he? The sinners knew they were sinners. The tax collectors knew they were tax collectors. They had a huge sense of guilt on some level in a culture such as theirs. But it was the Pharisees who thought, I'm fine. 
I'm godly the way that I am. Christ had a lot of difficulty with them. And so it is, by way of analogy only, how we would relate to one who is a member of our church who becomes entrenched in sin. Now that this person has been removed because they will not repent, there is a bit of a different kind of relationship. One that is harder than how we relate to an unbeliever who makes no pretensions of being part of the church. So the unbeliever, we say, come to Christ and join us. To the unrepentant former member, we say, turn from your sin and come and join us. Now, of course, there's a turning for sin for the unbeliever as well. But there's a different relationship here. Let me go to the third point, and that's that this call assumes that we will relate to one another under discipline with loyalty and common decency because we refer to this one as brother. And here I take it not so much as Christian brother united with the membership, but as a brother that is one with whom we have respect and care. So Edwards offers this, and I'll just draw from his thinking here, that we should care for such a person in sickness. If someone is removed from our membership, will not repent, do we not care for them in sickness? Or perhaps, as he says, with physical or property needs. No, we still love them. We will still perform family and civil responsibilities. Parents and husbands, wives and children will still relate as parents and wives and husbands and children. Even though one of that membership of that family may be under church discipline. Now you say, well, wouldn't that be obvious? Well, it hasn't been. And some have tried to come to terms with these passages and have gone out in ways that are a little bit unfortunate. Maybe very unfortunate, but the followers of Menno Simons, who later became the Mennonites, originally insisted that wedding vows include a promise to shun the person you're marrying if the church would ever exercise discipline against them. Imagine how that worked out. That really caused a lot of difficulties. And I think really what they're missing is just simply verse 15. Warn him as a brother. Don't hate him as an enemy. Don't isolate and shun in the ultimate sense of the word. When it says don't associate, there's a range to that word. And putting this all together, we continue to labor for the individual's repentance. We don't relate to this person as if nothing's wrong, but we also don't relate to this person as if they're dead. We continue to warn and to call and to encourage. So it would speak of continual admonition with a view to restoration, it would certainly encourage us to pray for this individual diligently. And of course, we struggle along these lines in our very large community with numerous churches. As people leave under church discipline, it's difficult sometimes to retain any relationship with them. But that relationship is to be different. It is not to be treated as if they're dead we're simply to bring appropriate shame. Now, let's come back to that point just for a few moments. Why do we find the application of communal shame so distasteful? Why is this not a popular topic? Why is it that we don't like this? I believe that one of the reasons is that our sinful hearts steel us against a healthy sense of the horror of our sin and the reality of our guilt before a holy God. We are certainly right to reject any twisted application of shame based on hideously false impositions of guilt. 
But let's say this, there is real guilt. There is real sin, and there is a real God who is really the judge. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. These are God's words of shame in one sense. If you come to this service today separated from Christ, that is, you do not know the joy of sins forgiven and have assurance of entering into Christ's presence someday forgiven, please understand this. One day you will stand before Jesus Christ as your judge. And on that day, apart from the mercy of God, your shame will become infinite. On that day, you will sense the searing, painful holiness of God as you stand there in the nakedness of your sinful shame. There, the burning hot glory of His perfections will expose to the light every lie, every lustful thought, every lustful deed, every critical spirit, Every idolatrous desire, greed, the harmful tongue, the failure to love others as you love yourself, and the failure ultimately to love God with all of your heart, you will stand before that holy presence in abject spiritual shame. Now in light of that potential moment, church discipline is simply a gentle warning to those who are not preparing for this final accounting before God. It's a church coming together to say, you must turn from your sin. And we are going to hold you at arm's length that the small sense of shame that you feel here will lead you to consider very carefully the infinite shame you may indeed sense before a righteous God in eternity. Seen in that sense, I ask you, is church discipline barbaric or is it ultimately loving? The good news, of course, for anyone who fears standing in the presence of God, and we all should, but the good news, of course, is that God has provided a way for us to stand in His his holy presence without shame. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. On a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of our sin. And for those who place their trust in this gracious act and in His resurrection power, God washes our sins away and He robes us in the righteous standing of Christ so that we can come before the holiness of God and know our sins are forgiven. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I stand in the righteousness of Christ without shame, without guilt, without condemnation. Amazing grace. It's available to us in Christ. And those who place their trust in that gracious work of Jesus, He'll wash away your sins and give you Christ's righteous standing. Why do we find Communal shame so distasteful because we're out of sync and out of touch with what it means to stand ashamed before a holy God someday. 
Let me give just one other reason. Another reason, I think, is that we find proper shame so distasteful because we are bent on glorifying ourselves, not God. We want to make much of ourselves rather than to make much of God's glory. And the result is that we protect the feelings and the sense of freedom of others at all costs. We give them what they want, which is to be left alone in their sin, unconfronted and granted full freedom to live the way they want to live. And because we are oriented there toward freedom and toward the feelings of others, rather than toward the glory of God, we let them go in their way. But when we realize that the church was saved to display the glory of God, we have utterly no business to walk in fellowship with those who are actively in a state of unrepentance, continuing to degrade that glory by being part of a body that is established to say, God is great and he rescues sinners. So we have an individual who's living completely out of sync with that purpose and we say nothing because we don't want to offend and we don't want to sit on somebody's freedom. It's at this very place that we need to enter in and appropriately handle shame. Now the key to it is utter humility, and that's why I start with Christ's death and resurrection. When shame is used as a bludgeon, it is because there's no humility. I want to use shame to get my way. I want you to do what I want you to do. I want you to make me feel a certain way, and so I will place shame upon you. There's no humility in that at all. And there's no humility in it either when we say we don't do shame. But the gospel brings us to a place, Christ's saving grace brings us to a place where we know our shame, we know His grace, and we are afraid for one another to stand in shame before Christ. And so with great humility, knowing that we are forgiven sinners, we wield shame graciously and appropriately to make sure that those within our assembly have the same standing before Christ and will someday stand there without condemnation. That's our calling. Is that pride? I think it's love. If it's done the right way, we must constantly be concerned that we do not exercise church discipline with pride or harshly, but that always it would come with a broken heart saying, I love you enough to work together with other brothers and sisters in Christ to make sure as far as lies within us that you will someday stand before Christ unashamed. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as a church, we need your help. We need your aid because we know that we do not find these things easy or comfortable. But as this church matures, as we grow in Christ, I pray that you will help us to continue to do the hard work of calling people to a place where they will be prepared to stand before Christ. 
If there's someone that does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would place within their heart a fear of standing before you. The audacity to stand before the Creator and Sustainer of the universe who lives in utter holiness and to say that I'm okay. I pray that that audacity would overwhelm them with shame. And I pray that you'd bring them humbly to salvation in Christ. And for those who are members of this church and know Christ as Savior, I pray that we would grow in our faithfulness to help one another be prepared to meet Christ. To this end, we pray, throwing ourselves at your mercy, asking for your grace to continue to operate within our church. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen.